Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. I confess, when I first moved to Connecticut in 2018, I didn't know too much about the state. Yale University popped into my mind, but mostly because of the TV series Gilmore Girls. One of the main characters, Rory, grew up in a fictional Connecticut town and eventually went to Yale. To be honest, other than that, I didn't know too much else, except that the state was small, that it was part of New England, and that it was close to New York. And even that, I wasn't 100% sure about. It's been really great learning about the state where I now call home. One of the first surprises I had was how history and literature just jumps out for me in Connecticut. As a West Coaster, learning about East Coast history is very different when you're actually seeing where the history happened. Suddenly, dots were actually connecting. The colonial witch trials made so much more sense, and I see why an Ivy League school would inspire dark academia novels and vampire stories. And you know, when you're touching the literal water that inspired The Witch of Blackbird Pond by Elizabeth George Sphere, that hits different. And the list of surprises for me goes on and on, which makes me even more excited that today we're going to be discussing Connecticut's identity and what that means to you. What characterizes or defines where you live? Or what stereotypes about the state would you like to put bash on? Join the conversation this hour. Find us on social media or give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. And who better to help me moderate this discussion with you all than some of my fellow hosts here at Connecticut Public. With me today is Colin McEnroe himself. Colin, thanks so much for joining wherever you live today. I was not told there would be witches. (laughs) Well, (laughs) guess who just rolled in? And with me here laughing is Kyone Wolf, who is here in studio. Kyone, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. And we also have the amazing Kalila Brown-Dean, who is also here with us today. Thanks, Kalila, for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I already feel like this is kind of an implosion of a day here and uh, just a little bit of a buildup. Feels like national publications are sort of on this continual rediscovering of Connecticut and New Haven. Just this week, Cosmopolitan published a piece called New Haven is the cultural hotspot you didn't know you needed, parentheses, yes, in Connecticut, parentheses. And one Twitter or ex-user, DFA New, New Haven, rounded up Four times the New York Times had, quote, discovered, rediscovered, and re-rediscovered that after decades of crime, the renewed new New Haven is more than just mozzarella and academics. And one New York Times reporter who we spoke with for this show was an embed in the Elm City for four months, and her recent piece on the state's rebrand was headlined, Stuffy, Preppy, Sleepy. Can a rebrand fit Connecticut's reputation? So with that being said, I will love all of your perspectives on how the state shows up on a national stage. Colin, let's start with you. 
Yeah, I mean, how we show up on the national stage, I think, is heavily conditioned by how we're portrayed in the media, whether it's on in Gilmore Girls or, you know, old Catherine Hepburn movies, um, in, in Pillow Talk with Doris Day and Rock Hudson. Connecticut is where you go to Tony Randall's creepy apartment to fool around, uh, as opposed to what you can do under the watchful eyes of the New York elites. It varies a lot, but I think there is a consistent understanding, and it's there in one of the adjectives that you cited, that we are stuffy. Uh, and I mean, I don't think that's an entirely erroneous way to characterize us, although it's an oversimplification. Uh, Connecticut, obviously... Uh, is urban. It has a long manufacturing history. It's, you know, uh, ethnically uh, somewhat diverse anyway, <laughs> anyway, racially and ethnically somewhat diverse. So, you know, what you see in the media and then what you would experience as, in, as the reality is probably a little bit different. Kyle, your thoughts? Well, as somebody who was born in Hartford and has lived in Hartford for 20 years, I, I love this city. I, I have to admit publicly, it's important to be honest about who I am, that I have quite a bit of New Haven envy. Mm. Uh, also, fun trick, you can uh, if you meet somebody and they call it New Haven, accent on the new, you can ask them where they grew up because it wasn't Connecticut. I don't know. It's a weird thing that people do. Anyway, New Haven aside, one thing that I think about a lot when it comes to rebranding Connecticut or even the image of Connecticut is that people think it's stuffy for good reason. But when I think about places like Austin, Portland, I think about that weird factor, right? And I think about how if Connecticut could really embrace and highlight its weirdness, that that would be a net positive, not only for the people who live here, but the people who want to spend their money here. I mean, I even think about how, you know, when you feel like if you if you think that Connecticut is kind of stuffy and you think, I want to go somewhere weird with some cool culture and stuff I've never heard of and people doing brave, bold things. Well, how did the places that are weird get weird? The people who wanted it to stayed there. So I advocate for defecting in place, keep your weird here, develop your weird here, and uh, we'll talk about it more. But that's that's something I'd like to lean into. Yeah, I would love to see what Connecticut weird looks like. Mm. We'll get into it in a little bit, but I just came back from Portland, Oregon, who their, their sort of city emblem is to stay weird. But I can already tell you that that kind of weird is going to be, or it is very different from Connecticut weird. So on the New Haven note, Kalila, as our resident New Havener this morning, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I come into this conversation a little differently, too, because I wasn't born here and I've now been in Connecticut for 20 years. Hard to believe all of those years in New Haven and people still ask me where I went to high school. And that is still the marker of are you really in New Haven or did you just come here? And there's all these assumptions that come with that. But I also think it's important to think about what makes Connecticut special. And part of that is that it's such a diverse state, not just in terms of demographics, but what you think of Connecticut in the quiet corner may not be what people in Willimantic think about Connecticut. And New Haven, of course, I'm partial to New Haven. But that idea of we can be our own, create our own, and grow in the ways that we want to is something that is unique to Connecticut. When I first told people I was moving here, they said, oh, it's so dangerous. There's so much crime. And I came to visit and I remember looking around like, really, is, is this the place that you think I should be afraid of? So that idea of extremes, of extreme wealth and extreme struggle, once you're here for a bit, you realize how that is really oversimplified what we have here in Connecticut. 
Well, that's so interesting because I remember when I mentioned to a couple people that I was moving to Connecticut, and one of the first reactions was, "Oh, what's there?" <laughs> or "There's nothing there." And I remember thinking even before getting here, "Is like there's no such thing as nothing in any place, right?" And I feel like oversimplification and um, creating our own sort of thing feels very much fueling this national debate that's really been taking shape in the wake of the state's rebrand. So late last year, Governor Benamon announced the slogan, still revolutionary, would be retired in favor of a $2 million make it here rebrand, as well as a $3 million find your vibe tourism campaign. So Kion, we mentioned stay weird earlier, and I know you have a hot take on the state's previous slogan, still revolutionary. So You, you know, oh, first of all, okay, $2 million for Make It Here, $3 million for Find Your Vibe. I would like to offer my services for just one, just one. And just my, my only thought with the Still Revolutionary was when that came out, I thought they could fix that one by removing one word, still. It's defensive. Mm-hmm. We're still, we're still, we're still here. We're still good. We're still fun. We're still revolutionary. If we took out still, you would end up with Connecticut, revolutionary. Okay, okay, we can work with that. So I suggest, uh, predictably, Connecticut. Weird. (laughs) Weird. Two, both of them. Weird. Weird. That's just so on brand right now. (laughs) Kalila, what are your thoughts on that? You know, maybe it's it's to be expected since Kion and I both host shows with one word named (laughs) and disruptive. That's a great point. (laughs) We like that openness and being open to interpretation. The other piece that I think, and, you know, this isn't just the the fluffy, fun piece of branding because it really sets forth the intention of the state to think about finding your vibe and make it here. I think we also have to talk about the challenges that people face in making it here in Connecticut and to be realistic about that. And what it means for people to say, yes, I grew up here, I tried to make it here, but maybe I can't continue to make it here and I have to go elsewhere. So as the state is thinking about its future, we're thinking about the aging demographics of this state. What is it that will resonate with younger people so they want to stay or that they want to come here and build and pursue their futures? That's why it has to be more than just what some really great branding agency says, but really about what Connecticut will commit to. And Colin, as a fellow host with multiple words in their show titles, really quickly here, what would your slogan be? Well, can I just go back to Still Revolutionary and say that um, that campaign, I believe, cost $27 million. What? Uh, it, it was done by an out-of-state firm. In other words, to come up with a brand for Connecticut's tourism identity, they hired somebody who wasn't in Connecticut to do it. One of the elements of it was this really weird song that was debuted with Carolyn Kwan of the Hartford Symphony conducting an orchestra in this two-and-a-half-minute song that did not mention Connecticut in its lyrics. Uh, or revolutionary, I think. Um, so it was a very weird thing. I, I, I think another interesting part of that, too, was that Dan Malloy, who was governor at the time of the institution of this slogan, said that it included the sexual revolution, which is kind of funny because, and he, he was talking about Griswold versus Connecticut, but that kind of overlooks the fact that Griswold versus Connecticut was necessary because the Connecticut General Assembly had passed a law 
parentheses, introduced by P.T. Barnum, who was a state <sighs> legislator, close parentheses, that outlawed contraceptives. In other words, the reason we were part of the sexual revolution was because we had a far more repressive anti-contraception law than a lot of other states. So all of, for all of that, it was a pretty successful uh, slogan. I mean, tourism went up. They did studies, possibly CYA type studies, saying that the slogan helped. Huh. And so, Colin, on that note, as we're learning so much here, you've pointed out how much the state's origin story is really defined by Puritanism and how in that way, that pretty much means we're very unfun. So can you talk about the importance of our origin story and our other stories and even how the early slogan of steady habits factor into this? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be quick about this. But um, yes, um, this was a state founded by Puritans. There's a book by David Hack. Fisher, the historian called Albion's Seed, in which he, he talks about how the folkways of any uh, American place uh, are, are started by its first um, old world immigrants. So whatever, you know, whoever settled your area, as other waves of immigrants come, they'll just sort of adopt some of the same attitudes. But yeah, the the what Connecticut did was kind of bizarre. They had the fundamental orders. That was the very, very first version of a government. This is early colonial times. They replaced it eventually with the, a charter from the crown, which Connecticut then refused to give up at the end of the American Revolution. We did not really um, adopt, we didn't adopt our own state constitution that was more reflective of the post-revolutionary American reality until 1818. Up until 1818, we had a state religion. Congregationalism was our state religion. Uh, the phrase separation of church and state comes from a letter that Jefferson wrote uh, to the Danbury uh, Baptists because they were really kind of considered semi-illegitimate because we had a state religion. Uh, so, uh, yes, then then around around the same time, this idea of the land of steady habits comes up. This is a thing, a tag that was a, applied to Connecticut and really stayed for about 200 years. Talk about a tourism campaign. Um, and it was initially meant to refer to the fact that the political class didn't change. It was essentially a early 19th century federalist political political class that just didn't budge. Uh, but it, I think, went on to mean a lot of different things. I, if there's one true thing about Connecticut that's you know, not universally true, I think it is kind of a resistance to change, which, of course, bumps heads a little bit with still revolutionary. And we'll definitely talk more about the fundamental orders later on on the show. But I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that you can also join the conversation this hour. What do people get wrong or right about Connecticut? Let us know. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. And I'm also going to take a quick moment here to take a call from Nate, who's calling in from New Haven. Nate, you are on the air. Okay, great. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I just wanted to sort of bring up, like, I was going down a rabbit hole around the the term Yankee, and I stumbled across the uh, Penitite Yankee War, which was a uh, colonial conflict between people from Pennsylvania and people from Connecticut. And I found it kind of interesting that the people from Connecticut were referred to just as Yankees and just... In terms of doing some research, it seems that Yankee is a very appropriate term for people from Connecticut. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of annoyed that uh, the Yankees appropriated sort of the only cultural touchstone us from Connecticut really had. Well, thank you so much for that call, Nate. And, Colin, I have a sneaky suspicion that you might be able to respond to this one. 
Colin, are you there? Did we just lose Colin? We, of all people. Of all people? <laughs> wow. All right. Well, Nate, we're going to have- You got me. You got me. I'm got back. It. I'm sorry about that. So I think Yankee was originally a slur. Um, I think it comes from uh, a Native American word for coward. Um, <laughs> so Yankee wasn't a nice thing to call people. But yes, of course, eventually, one of the one of the other things we do in Connecticut is we have conflict. And one of the, so the air, the, if you were to draw a line- that separated the predominance of New York Yankee fans from the predominance of Boston Red Sox fans, it would kind of unsurprisingly look like the line between the part of Connecticut that was heavy with supporters of the crown, uh, Tory loyalists, and uh, people from Connecticut who were more supportive of the revolution. And I'm not saying that Yankee fans are a bunch of loyalist Tories who are not real patriots, although you can draw your own conclusion about that. I will say that they had a King George too. His name was Steinbrenner. Um, so, you know, there is, I, I don't know, there, there's those divisions. We're always bumping heads about something. And <clears throat> bumping heads from past to present. I want to bring it back to present just a little bit here. I mentioned earlier that uh, Where We Live producer Katie Pellico spoke to the New York Times embed Amelia Nuremberg. And here's what Amelia has to say about her experience here in Connecticut. I wasn't moving to Connecticut to cover Connecticut just for Connecticuters um, or nutmeggers. I was moving to Connecticut to cover Connecticut for people in the UK or people in Indiana or people in South Korea who might be reading the New York Times um, because we are an international and national paper. And so one of the main questions that I think any national or international correspondent asks is what what are kind of the main ideas running through the place that I'm in. And going back to cover the state, um, as kind of my, my title was like acting Connecticut correspondent or acting Connecticut bureau chief, depending on how official I needed to sound. Um, I spent the months before doing the job, just interviewing, like getting a coffee or having a call or grabbing a lunch with people who I thought of as intelligent, plugged in, informed people in the state. Um, and that ranged from professors to activists to organizers to business leaders to people in state government. And so if you've read the story, you might be forgiven for thinking we only have celebrities like Meg Ryan or Pa Giamatti here. And but she Amelia did mention that she did speak to a wider range of people. But Kalala, we'll love your thoughts on this about this kind of coverage of Connecticut. You know, what was going through your mind as, as you were listening to Amelia's experience here? You know, I remain puzzled by the idea of having a, a New York Times embed in Connecticut. It's just a, a bizarre concept because this is a place where, again, if you've been here for two years or for 50 years, really getting a feeling, a sense for it takes some time and it takes a connection that is more natural and more um, sort of by happenstance, because I always feel that's how people meet and connect in Connecticut, being such a small state. And that is very different from the strategic interviewing or outreach to people that can happen. And the other piece of it that I thought listening to that response is, you know, what Connecticut has to offer to people in London or in Indiana really varies in a way that I don't think we can always capture in just an article. It's a feeling. Sometimes it's a smell. It's a sense of place and a sense of being that is difficult to capture 
compared to a place that is designed for tourists or designed to attract people who may not have an organic interest and connection to the state. Well, and speaking on a sense of being, I want to play a, a bite here from Tochi Onobuchi, who is an acclaimed fantasy author who calls New Haven home. And he also considers Connecticut a microcosm of the country. Let's take a quick listen. So many of the macroeconomic and macroscopic social dynamics that are often pointed to as explanations for why America is the way that it is, you can see in this experiment that is Connecticut. So, Kalila, especially with what we were just talking about and what uh, Tochi just said, you know, what are your thoughts about that microcosm? I think it's spot on. If you really want to know Connecticut, you just don't interview the people that you think are intelligent or the people that you think have something to offer in a particular way. You go sit on the New Haven Green and you listen and you observe. You go to a UConn women's basketball game and you watch generations of families gathering in those ways. You go sit in a coffee shop and listen to people debate what their next project is going to be how they fund it, how they uh, communicate the importance of it. That's the piece of it that for someone who, especially for an author who is inspired in many ways, that's the way you capture Connecticut in its purest form. So I got one more question here for all three of you before we go to a quick break here. So Amelia Nuremberg, the Times reporter we've been talking about, has had talked to our producer, Katie Pellico, about how many people see Connecticut's difference as a string. So, for example, she raised a Hamden and Lyme are very different. And that's a good thing. What do you think about that, Kyone? I agree. I, I like the idea that um, no, nothing and no one is two dimensional. And the multifacetedness of all of us is what makes us really compelling and interesting and it's funny, even this whole conversation offers this sort of existential uh, something about how can you sum up an entire geographic location? And I'm, I'm not sure you can. But I like the challenge of it, but um, I do think the difference is the most exciting part. And the things and the ways that we overlap um, are also fascinating, too. I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. Kalila, what do you think? Now, I'm thinking about this from the context of being a parent who mm. is the parent to a high school student who's thinking about where they want to go to college for that next stage of their life. And is very clear about what they have experienced in Connecticut is something that they want to continue. That idea of opportunity, of possibility, and frankly, not having to worry about some of the ugliness and divisiveness that they see in other parts of the country. Doesn't mean that there are not issues here because we all know there are. But that idea of, of having a, a safe sense of possibility and support is something that I think is critical when we think about how do we capture a state that has so many different facets to it and aspects. And Colin, any thoughts here? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think it's important to highlight highlight the insanity uh, of Connecticut. There are 169 towns crammed into this very, very small state. And as has been suggested earlier, the, the towns don't think they have very much in common one in, with one another. If you were to suggest that Old Saybrook and Old Lyme are kind of the same place, both sides would be offended by that. Um, uh, in the 70s, early 80s, 
the Los Angeles Times acquired the Hartford Current, and they sent a bunch of um, editors from Los Angeles out here. And the first thing they did was look at the bureau structure of the Hartford Current. At that point, the Hartford Current had, for example, an old Seabrook bureau and a Groton bureau. So these people from L.A. looked at it and they said, "You, this is insane. You can't do this. This is such a waste uh, of the labor force. You know, we need to concentrate on, on bigger things and bigger questions. And everybody at the Current went, uh-uh. <laughs> Those people in Avon, they want there to be an Avon bureau uh, with, you know, two or three reporters sitting there covering the Farmington Valley. So that whole idea of these little towns with almost overdetermined identities is is really, really big. And by the way, Kalila, I loved your initial response to the New York Times thing. I, I thought you just just totally nailed it. Thank you, Carl, and I'll pay you after the show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure that actually happens. Uh, so we do have to take a quick break, but I do want to take a call really quickly here. Um, Iman from New Haven, you are on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, so I recently moved to Connecticut um, in 2021, and I love it here. But my partner is definitely, as she's finishing residencies, thinking about leaving, we're queer. And so part of her reason to want to leave is just this lack of visible queer culture. And so I'd love it, love it if someone could make a case about why it would be worth it to stay here. Because um, I want to stay and I want to convince her to stay, but I need to give her good reasons. Well, we're happy to hear that you want to stay. And thank you so much for calling in. And I know someone who wants to jump on this. <laughs> Iman, it's Kayon. Uh, first of all, thanks for that phone call. And I, I in, in, in the honor of defecting in place, the only way you affect a place uh, is to stay and say, we're here, we're queer, we're... <laughs> We're going to not go anywhere else. That doesn't rhyme. Um, but it's so important, I, I believe, to if you want to see a place transform into something beautiful, uh, to bring your own beauty to it. And so I hear the struggle. I, I imagine maybe your partner is drawn to plenty of other places in the country that have uh, maybe a more vibrant, uh, visible queer community. But the reason why we've grown ours in this state is because people have stayed and people have shined and made those connections. So I hope you stay and I hope uh, you shine as well. So thanks. So now we really have to take that break before we continue this Connecticut Public Host Palooza. And here to help play us out is All Things Considered host John Henry Smith with his take on what makes Connecticut, Connecticut. When I think of what has stood out about Connecticut to me, the very first thing I think of is the constant proximity to woodlands and woodland creatures. Having spent most of my prior life in concrete and steel cathedrals like Detroit, New York, Miami, and San Francisco, the pigeon, the sparrow, and the squirrel were mostly the only wildlife visible to me on the daily, although I did have a high noon type of stare down with an iguana once in South Florida, which, by the way, continues to live in my nightmares, but I digress. Here in Connecticut, though, I regularly find myself just marveling at the breathtaking beauty of all those trees, especially in the fall. And as for wildlife, well, here in Connecticut, I have had reasonably close encounters with snakes, turtles, wild turkeys, black bears, raccoons, field mice, hawks, bunny rabbits, a muscular feline creature I'm pretty sure was a bobcat, and a possum that appears to still be living under my front stoop, without paying rent, I might add. Sure, a couple of these encounters have made me a tad nervous, but mostly I have found it extremely cool to get to see these wonderful animals up close. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing Connecticut's long-debated identity. Twitter user DFA New Haven shared with us that I guess I'm agnostic and ambivalent about Connecticut having a distinct personality or identity, which is why I'm always poking fun at others' dubious attempts to decipher the Rorschach test. Other Instagram users describe Connecticut in a few words. Connection, culture, care, coastline for days, small state, big stories. The value of the Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River, the list goes on, we know. But we want to hear your take. How would you rebrand Connecticut? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining me back now to discuss is our amazing panel of Connecticut public hosts. We have Colin McEnroe, Kalila Brown-Dean, and Kayone Wolf. So at the top of the hour, I mentioned Gilmore Girls, and we talked a little bit about pop culture, but this is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of pop cultural Connecticut lore. So, Colin, we know you recently interviewed Ilana Douglas, uh, the author of the new book, Connecticut in the Movies, From Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. So would be very interested to hear about your take on how pop culture has shaped or skewed Connecticut's reputation. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Um, and I think there was, uh, I think in, in the early part uh, of the 20th century, uh, the dawn of the movie industry, uh, and then the dawn of television, there was this kind of white picket fence idea, you know, Connecticut, it was sort of Christmas in Connecticut. It was where reasonably affluent white people uh, came to live or to flee New York. Um, it, it overlooked all of the complexity that we're talking about right now. And it particularly, there used to be a historian at Wesleyan, the late Bruce Fraser, uh, who was chairman of the Connecticut Humanities Council. This used to drive him crazy. He said, like, this is kind of a manufacturing state and it's really a place where influxes of immigrant populations come in and work in factories and all of that just kind of gets lost. I think, and Ileana's book is tremendous. It is really one of the most thorough palpations of Connecticut identity, the reality versus what you see on screen that, that I've read in years. But, you know, as we go along, it gets a little bit more complicated. Complicated, You do start to see a little bit more uh, of an urban story. Also, it turns out to be a place where we have lots of ghosts and haunted houses. And, you know, you buy a house and you either spend a fortune remodeling it or it turns out that there's blood pouring down the stairs. Well, and speaking of haunted houses, Kayone, I know you're our resident weird czar. So what are your thoughts about 
Hauntings in Connecticut. That's right. There's the movie, The Haunting in Connecticut, right? And I <laughs> I had the honor and privilege of going uh, down for my show, Audacious, to visit John Zaffis. He's a paranormal investigator and the nephew of the famous paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, and he also runs the John Zaffis Museum of the Paranormal, where people would send him objects that they felt had something wonky going on with it. And he would collect them, and they'd be able to figure out whether getting rid of this object would would change their lives. Um, But that's a great weird part of Connecticut. And we also can, who can forget the John Oliver Memorial Sewer Plant in Danbury? That's That's a nice weird thing. There's also in uh, Park Street in Hartford, there's a Curioporium by Joey Marsacci, a brilliant design artist. Uh, And if you also live in Hartford or are anywhere near here, you know about Nightfall, which is every October takes place. It's this performance that takes place in a different Hartford Park every year uh, featuring Ann Coverley's giant puppets. So that's really cool. So we've got weird uh, not only in our hauntings and our in our movies, but uh, all over the place. And Kalila, you know, how would you say pop culture has shaped or skewed our reputation here in Connecticut? And I think it's back to that tale of extremes of thinking that everyone drives, you know, their Rolls Royce to go to Starbucks or whatever else the image is. But it's interesting to me to see how Connecticut is appearing in more recent pop culture. There's a very popular TV series called Power from Courtney Kemp and the rapper 50 Cent, who actually used to live in Connecticut. And it is this image of Connecticut is the place where All of these kids go to boarding school when they want to escape from the grittiness of what's happening in their lives in New York City and how it continues with them. The piece, though, that I think we often overlook is how Connecticut history has shaped our understandings of American history more broadly and how in some elements of pop culture, we're seeing that more. We're seeing conversations about the time that Martin Luther King Jr. spent in Connecticut working on a tobacco farm and how as grueling and impossible as that work was, he said it was the first time that he felt that he could be free and not be constrained by Jim Crow laws that defined where he had to sit on the train as he traveled back home to Georgia. So that connection between pop culture, between history and a realization that, you know, Connecticut actually was a site for a lot of those battles about the meaning of democracy. That's what stands out to me. And I, and I think that's a great point because that's really what jumped out for me as well. As I mentioned earlier, you know, reading uh, history in a textbook is so different compared to actually witnessing you know, the literal grounds of where these battles have happened. And, and as we sort of weave through the past and the present, you know, there is a trend on social media recently where you'll kind of see this roll call of New England states, each with their own distinct personalities. And Connecticut is either represented by an empty chair and crickets or someone with a pop collar and other sort of signifiers of wealth. You know, what can we do to change this in your view, Kalila? Now, I go back to, this is going to sound a little weird. I, I go back to the Democratic National Convention back in 2020 when we were still, you know, in various stages of lockdown. And the states did their roll call via video. And I kept wondering, okay, what is Connecticut going to do? How will they represent our state? And it felt like such a dud because with all of the beauty, the invention, the inspiration, the the ways that people have made their way in Connecticut, it didn't feel like we captured it. So I think what's key, Catherine, is telling our Connecticut stories. 
And not just the stories that are well-known, not just the stories that are authored by our very famous authors who are here, but those everyday stories that connect people to place and experience and also help people understand the tremendous diversity that exists within our state in terms of immigrant status, what people do for a living, what they find joy in, and how they see themselves as people. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts, Kalila. Right now, I'm going to take a quick call from Susanna. Susanna, you are on the air. Hi. Um, this is a great discussion. Um, I actually grew up in Connecticut, moved away, had no intention of coming back, and then um, met my husband <laughs> and moved from New York City <clears throat> to Colebrook. So population, um, I think we're at 1,400. And I just wanted to add that Connecticut has so much diversity that my friends outside of Connecticut don't understand um, that we have cities and suburbs, but we also have rural towns. And we have 23 towns in Connecticut that have fewer than 1,900 people living in each town. Um, And I think that's often forgotten, as well as... um, the Northwest Hills, which are the foothills of the Berkshires, and um, are absolutely stunning. But we also have the coastline. Thank you so much, Susanna, for calling and sharing your story. Uh, Kayone, thoughts about small towns and finding diversity there? Yeah, um, I think I grew up in Farmington, and uh, and I live in Hartford. And I feel like it's funny because when I think about uh, places being compared to the places around them, part of me constricts, like uh, being in the foothills of the Berkshires, like the Berkshires, they got their thing going on, like the Northwest Corner is its own thing as well. And I feel like there there's a temptation to compare uh, one area to another just to try to understand it better when that area truly stands on its own. And I'd like to kind of jump back real quick about um, talking about Connecticut's representation. It's one more reason, like in the in the bigger sphere, one more reason for every single arts organization in every single town or wherever they represent to be highlighting the people that are doing really interesting and creative things and continue representing the the uniqueness of exactly who they are within the context of their own their own part of the state. Well, it sadden me, saddens me that we're going to have to end this conversation pretty soon with our amazing roundtable of hosts. But I do want all of you to respond to one more take because it's important to showcase that we have new faces at Connecticut Public who are also new to the area and New Haven. Asad Hajila is our invest is on our investigative team, and he shared his experience moving from his post as a Report for America core member at Spotlight Pennsylvania State College. Let's take a quick listen here. When I first moved to Connecticut, I was expecting to be surrounded by ostentatious wealth. I went to school in New York City, and few people I met from Connecticut came from anywhere north of Stamford. I ended up moving to New Haven, which in my head was overshadowed by Yale. Through my reporting on criminal justice, I came to see Connecticut as a more complicated place with systemic and racial inequities like any other state in the country. I found the state to be more diverse than I expected it to be, with excellent access to South and Central American food and excellent Asian and African specialty markets. I haven't even been here a year, so I know there's a lot more to explore and experience. 
So Kalila, we love your thoughts on this idea, the overshadowing reputation of Yale. You know, what went through your mind when you heard that as a as a New Havener? What immediately went through my mind was this book by Nicholas Davidoff, The Other Side of Prospect, right? A story of violence and justice in the American city. And I feel like everyone who's moving to New Haven should read that book because it also points out the parts of New Haven that get overshadowed and overlooked, but also what happens in American cities and states, frankly, who try to build their entire identity on an institution without thinking about the investments and the cultivation in its people. And that's what I think about when I think about New Haven, that yes, Yale is there. Yes, Yale contributes in amazing ways. But if you really want to see New Haven, go to New Hallville, go to Dixwell, go to Westville, explore those neighborhoods and what they mean for how we create our own sense of community when people are overlooked. Colin, any final thoughts here on new perspectives from new people coming into Connecticut? Yeah, I mean, just on the New Haven part of it, I just want to say that I so I graduated from Yale in 1976 and nobody stayed in New Haven. There was no reason to stay in New Haven. And and one of the initiatives of by both Yale uh, and uh, John DiStefano, who was mayor for like 184 years, uh, was to change that, uh, to make New Haven a place where people would graduate from Yale and then stay there. And that happened. I think it's really important. But I think another thing that was in that clip that's really worth mentioning is both things are true. This is an incredibly affluent state on a per capita basis. It, I haven't checked the figures lately. It used to be, sort of be go neck and neck with New Jersey as the most affluent state uh, in the U.S. It's also very poor. Hartford used to go neck and neck with Brownsville, Texas. Uh, as by at least some metrics, the poorest city in, in America. Both things are true. We have great wealth. We have terrible poverty uh, that still needs work. Kion, final thoughts. I love what Ashad said. And I, uh, it reminds me of the delight that you can take when you're wrong, when you're misinformed, when you thought you saw something correctly and you realize that you didn't see the whole story. And, and I recognize I'm about to sound like a fun drive, but that's public radio. That's what we do is to explore what we think we know and to figure out that we there's so much more to know. So I, Ashad, thank you for that that perspective on where you're getting to know. And I look forward to all of us uh, being surprised and a bit humbled by the information that comes our way. And honestly, so please call 1-800-584-2788. Guess what's happening soon, everyone. And honestly, that's one of my favorite things about being in a new place is to learn and be surprised because I find myself constantly surprised and usually in the good way. So I appreciate all of your thoughts and a huge thanks to everyone for joining me today. We have Colin Macro, uh, Kalila Brown-Dean, Kion Wolf. Thank you, all three of you, for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you. This was really fun. We will have to do it again. And after a quick break, we're going to go into uh, political science and uh, Connecticut expert Jonathan Wharton will be joining us. And it's not too late for you to share your pitch. How would you rebrand Connecticut? Let us know. 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And here's Frankie Graziano with a thoughtful take on his home state. Connecticut. Small but mighty? Or more than just a pass-through to New York and Boston, you know. You heard about the U.S. Constitution? Yeah, well, our Constitution came first. Connecticut was the first state to enact police reform after George Floyd was murdered. Catherine Hepburn, Jackie Robinson, and John Brown lived here. And our pizza's better than your pizza. 
Our pizza's better, but we're not better than anybody, and that's okay. We don't score a touchdown every time. We miss the paths, and Lego and GE left us. No, we don't get it right every time, and we got the same problems you do. We might be able to sort through them quicker, though, even with the Land of Steady Habits nickname we got. That's because proximity is key, and our state capital ain't too far from Putnam, Greenwich, or Gales Ferry. Yeah, we'll task force you to death, but you gotta love CT. After all, we are small, but mighty. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with me to wrap up this conversation about Connecticut's identity is Jonathan Warden. He's an associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for including me, Catherine. Although, you know, I wanted to jump in the middle of everything for the last 40 something minutes. <laughs> I know, which means, I mean, we, we know we have to come back and do several other conversations about this, clearly not just a one show topic. And I do want to start this conversation by taking a call from Tris, who is calling from North Stonington. Tris, are you there? Oh, Tris is not there. Just kidding. Maybe if we uh, get you back, we'll get you on there quickly. Um, so, just wanted to, or actually, let me just read a quick comment that she shared with us, uh, Jonathan. I'm going to have you respond here. So Tris shared that she moved here from Florida, and the biggest impression is that it's all Fairfield County. But in reality, it's really different from, or it's really different, all self-reliant, hardworking Yankees. So Jonathan, you know, we've talked about this Fairfield County focus before. What's your response to uh, what Tris has to say? Yeah, no, this is partly the reason why I wrote my piece that I did, what, a year and a half ago, I guess, that you all featured up there on Twitter um, in response to what is our identity in Connecticut. And I kind of responded again to it in terms of the governor's initiative last month as well for Connecticut um, uh, Post and certainly the New Haven Register. I think we're complex. We're very nuanced in Connecticut. And we should be proud of it. In fact, I've often when I, you know, argued in my classes when I teach Connecticut politics is that we are part of the tri-state area. No doubt about it. Part of the state does identify, and I think rightfully so including Fairfield County, even parts of New Haven County. At the same time, we're also very much New England. Um, unfortunately, we tend to get you know overlooked by it. We tend to sometimes ignore it, but we can't avoid it. I think we're very complex in that respect. And so I oftentimes tell my students and others, look, embrace this dynamic that we have this kind of geographical and historical, uh, you know, these dimensions that exist within our state. And so you've written several columns on this topic, you know, capturing this debate. And we have to squeeze in the fact that there is a very timely tie in with the fundamental orders of Connecticut that Colin mentioned earlier. Can you touch on that? Absolutely, because it was actually the anniversary of it was yesterday. Oh. And I think, again, that kind of gets to the fact about Connecticut that we tend to forget that a place like New Haven was founded as a theocracy. And I'm glad that Colin brought up congregationalism, because I always remind my students, if you ever go to most of these, you know, towns and even a place like New Haven, the white churches are usually congregationalist churches. And as a matter of fact, I'm actually one of the church deacons and singing my choir center church. So I'm very familiar with the history of group congregationalists. And so we tend to forget that, you know, in some of these towns and cities, they were founded by congregationalists who did obviously flee England uh, originally, as, as Colin brought up. And so it's interesting because in Connecticut, we tend to forget that when it comes to politics and even uh, government, it was oftentimes tied in to congregationalism. And we're obviously going to have to have you back to talk about Connecticut's sports identity in the future. But we've only yes. got like two minutes left here. But I would love for you to talk to us about your feelings about the so-called Whalers diaspora. Oh, I, I live for that because as one who grew up 
in West Hartford and went to all the games in the 80s um, and even in the early 90s. I, I was all about it. So many of my friends uh, were as well. Um, but I've been fascinated with this uh, you know, dynamic of whether the Whalers will come back or not come back um, because it, it's something where so many of the fans, including myself, had to join other teams, even in the tri-state area, where that would include um, you know, the Rangers, the Islanders, or God forbid, Boston. I mean, for me, I ended up being in Washington, D.C. for college, so I you know, became a Capitals fan and a season ticket holder. So I'd love to see you know, what is going on here with the Whalers, and obviously there's still interest in, in the Whalers here. And with 30 seconds to go, I think your students will be very excited for me to ask you this because I'm going to give you a test, is what's your proposal for Connecticut's slogan? Steady habits, weird, what's your vibe Vibe or vote? You know, I'm, I'm with the governor and the people. I, I think I, a rebranding effort is good, and, and I like it, make it here. I do. I, I'm not so much about the other one, but I think make it here, you know, sounds good, and it'd be great to kind of emphasize that, especially in terms of drawing younger people, newer people to come to Connecticut, because it's overdue for some of that. Well, we appreciate your time here. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts about our political identity? Yeah, I think we should still, um, you know, talk about it and understand, respect our history and, you know, discuss it out. You know, we need to find something that really makes us stand out as a state since we're very multidimensional. So it'd be great to continue this, you know, ongoing uh, discussion. Well, we'll definitely have you back for this ongoing discussion. Major thanks to Jonathan Wharton, who's Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. Thank you so much for being on the air with us today. Thank you again, Catherine. Appreciate it. And another major thanks for all of our esteemed Connecticut public hosts and reporters who joined us and weighed in on this hour. It was super fun, and we obviously have to do it again. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>